Well, good evening. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm glad that we can be here together. And I hope you've been uplifted by the things that we've already done. Um, the, the beautiful prayer that was uttered, uh, the scripture that was read, um, the songs that we've sung. Uh, amen to the things that have been said and done. May God be glorified and may we be uplifted by those things. If you have your Bible with you, would you open it up to Psalm 44, please? Psalm 44. And if you'd like to mark your spot there, that's one of two primary texts for the lesson tonight. Psalm 44. If I were to say Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, just the mention of that probably calls to mind basically the whole psalm. Many of you could probably recite that psalm from heart. From heart, We are sheep in that psalm. We are led by God into green pastures and beside still waters. And it's perhaps the most well-known of all of the psalms. But if I say Psalm 44, would we have the same results? Uh, would we have the same memory and familiarity? Um, probably not. But maybe you would say, well, didn't we read that not too long ago? And indeed we did. But if I were to pick one specific verse out of this psalm, if I were to say Psalm 44 and verse 22, maybe those numbers wouldn't mean anything to you. But if I were to quote it and say, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, Maybe you would recognize that. Maybe you would even say to yourself, that's quoted in the New Testament somewhere. Maybe you could even say it's in Romans chapter 8, and you'd be right. It is found in Romans chapter 8 in the context of the glory to be revealed in the Christian and our resurrection and new body when Christ returns. In the context of how we are more than conquerors because God is moving everything toward that glorious resurrection. In the context of everything that God is willing to do for and through us as evidenced most powerfully in the giving of His Son. In Romans chapter 8, it's in the context of Jesus as a conquering King with us as His glorified subjects. But that is not the context of Psalm 44. Psalm 44 is a very negative psalm. Uh, if you were to make a list of the most negative psalms in the book, it would be top 10, top 5, Top three, maybe? It is a psalm that seemingly borders on despair in a number of places. And the way that verse, verse 22, changes from the very dark context of despair in Psalm 44 to being placed in a context of hope and anticipation of glory in Romans chapter 8 is what I want us to consider for a few minutes this evening. So let's look at Psalm 44 together, and we're going to read this whole psalm. We're going to make a few comments as we go, and then we're going to draw some application uh, before we go back to Romans chapter 8 and read the context there. Psalm 44 is seemingly written after a major defeat. We're not told exactly when this was written. People have tried to guess, but that's all they are is guesses. It's during a time where Israel was relatively faithful, and yet still they've suffered a defeat at the hand of their enemies. It's when Israel is at one of its lowest states as a nation. And uh, I was asked when we read this as a congregation a few weeks ago by uh, one of our brothers, What's going on here? I mean, why is this in the Bible? Why is it included in, in the book of Psalms? And that's what I want us to, to consider and hopefully answer tonight. This is what we would call a communal lament. Um, it is a psalm that is written not from uh, the first person. I'm having trouble personally as an individual follower of God. 
It's a psalm that's written from the context of the nation of Israel. And you see that first person plural, we and our, a lot in this psalm. Uh, It's the first example, if you're reading straight through the psalms from Psalm 1 to the end, it's the first example of a psalm like this, but there are several others as you continue in the book. And so it's the nation as a whole that is grieving over their condition and feeling like God has abandoned them and and expressing that in some terms that no doubt would make us uncomfortable, should make us uncomfortable. So let's read this together, beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 44. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days, in the days of old. You drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out, for they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did they their own arm save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, the light of your countenance, because you favored them. We've studied this not too long ago in our, our Bible classes on Sunday morning. They drove out seven nations mightier and more powerful than they. It was the, it was the God of heaven who was doing these things. And so in verses 1 through 3, we see that the psalmist, and by extension the, the nation, is dwelling on Israel's glorious past. And they're desperately trying to find any glimmer of hope for the present by looking into the past and the way things used to be. Uh, their, Their present is not so glorious. And so they want to look back and say, I remember... And I was told, I've been told by by our fathers about some glorious times in the past. Maybe, maybe something like that can happen again. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, uh, I grew up in a very small congregation. Uh, The whole time that that I was there with that congregation, we were between 15 and 30 people. So so a small congregation. Um, And I remember some of the old timers talking about Uh, the building where we were in Spur, Texas, talking about uh, gospel meetings that they had back in the day, you know. And this this building would would seat maybe uh, 100, 120. And and they said, now this is their recollection of things, they said, we packed this thing so full, you know, there were 150 people in here and there were chairs up the aisles. And there were windows all along the sides of that building. And they said we would open up all of those windows and people would bring their chairs and they would sit outside to hear gospel preaching. And they talked about this glorious past. And here we were with our 15, 20, 25, 30 people. And I'm thinking to myself, did that really happen? Was it really that way? And maybe sometimes we fail to remember correctly how glorious the past really was. But in this psalm, it really was. God really did give them all of these things and give them victory and give them peace on every side. And they said, that's the way it was. Why isn't it that way anymore? So in verses 4 through 8, they express how they want to trust in God. They remember that and they want to trust in God that He can do something similar now. Notice verse 4. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hated us. In God we boast all the day long and praise your name forever, Salah. 
So they're saying, we want to trust in you, God. We're not trusting in ourselves, in our own power. We're trusting in you. And yet in verses 9 through 16, they look at their present circumstances and they don't see a lot of reasons to trust. They have all of this suffering. And I want you to notice specifically that they attest this suffering to God. They say God is the one who is causing this suffering. Read with me in verse 9. I mean, if you're not a, you're not a little bit uncomfortable reading this, um, I don't know. <laughs> you ought to be. I am. But you have cast us off. You have cast us off and put us to shame. And you do not go out with our armies. You make us turn back from the enemy. And those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. They've, they've plundered us, maybe your translation says. You had given us like sheep intended for food. We'll come back to that. And have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing and are not enriched by selling them. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to those all around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among the peoples. Uh, we know this experience. You think of someone, you think of their desperate circumstances, maybe even the sin that led them into it, and what do we do? He said, that's what all the nations do. They hear of Israel, they hear of Israel's God, and they say, boy, it didn't work out well for them. A shaking of the head among the peoples. Verse 15. My dishonor is continually before me, and the shame of my face has covered me, because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the enemy and the avenger. God was supposed to be on their side, and yet they feel like they're totally abandoned by God. And in verses 17 through 22, maybe here is where we would expect you know, confession and repentance. Like, God, you've done all of this, and we deserve it, and we're so sorry, and please restore us, and all these sorts of things. That's not what we find. What we find next is instead them asking God, why is this happening? We're innocent. We're serving you, and yet still we're suffering. It sounds a lot, to be honest, it sounds a lot like Job in the book of Job, except here it's the whole nation who is asking this question instead of just one righteous man. Verse 17. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, but you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. Now earlier in this psalm, they described themselves as sheep. But in what context? With the Lord is our shepherd and he's leading us beside the still waters? No, he says in verse 11, you have given us up like sheep intended for food. You know when you give a sheep up for food, it's when they're no longer bearing the wool that they're supposed to and they're not good for anything else. We think about, this is graphic, like horses going to the glue factory. That's what we're talking about. The sheep doesn't have any worth left and so we're just going to give it over for food. And he says, it's like we're in the shadow of death. That is the same exact phrase in Hebrew as what we find in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Here, it is God who has sent them to the shadow of death, and they don't feel like God is with them anymore. Verse 20, they're still appealing to their innocence. They say, 
If we have forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, that's the idea of praying to a God. Moses stretched out his hands to God when he prayed. He says, if we've prayed to, a, to another God, to a foreign God, would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. If we deserve to be treated like this, then God would know that. But we haven't. We're not. And so verse 22, yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. So that's what's going on right now. And they're asking, why is this happening? And so in verses 23 through 26, they, they have a plea to God for help. Awake, they say to God in verse 23. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Um, we're told in a number of places in the Bible, Psalm 121 and verse 4, God neither sleeps nor slumbers. And you remember when uh, Elijah was making fun of the prophets of Baal because they were cutting themselves and going on, uh, carrying on all day long. Remember he starts making fun of them and he says, well maybe your God's on a trip. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe that's why he doesn't hear. And here the people of God are saying, God are you asleep? Why are you not hearing us? Arise, do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face? And forget your affliction and our oppression. For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. How would you describe the mood of this psalm? Glory or despair? Optimism or pessimism? The people of God are confused and perplexed, and crying out to God to try and understand their case. They, they look at their lives and they say, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. That's our present situation. That's the way we feel. It is a psalm of darkness. It is a psalm of despair. It is a, it is a cynical psalm. A psalm that is seemingly unsure about whether or not God is going to come to the aid of his people. And again, as the brother asked me in the back, why? What's going on here? Why is this in the Bible? Well, let me ask, what do we learn from this psalm? Um, and then we'll get to Romans chapter 8. Number one, um, God could have stricken this from the record. God could have seen to it that though this psalm was written by the, uh, the uh, sons of Korah, uh, that it wasn't included in the book of Psalms. It wasn't preserved. And yet God preserved these words. Why? I think in large part because He wants us to cry out. Whatever our situation is, however we feel, God wants us to wrestle with our feelings and emotions. He doesn't want us to suppress those things or pretend like we don't feel that way. He wants us to come to Him with those things. Um, I was talking with Todd Martin after services this morning and and uh, we were talking about um, how he's been trying to get beyond that idea of, well, I've got to get in the right mindset in order to pray. Um, I've got to be in this very spiritual sort of mindset if I'm going to pray to God. Uh, when God knows all of my thoughts anyway, God knows what's going on in my heart. He knows what's going on in my mind. So I should pray to him at all times. I should pray to him to get into a spiritual sort of um, a frame of mind. And so God did preserve these words in Scripture. 
He wants us to cry out to Him at all times. And I want to suggest that maybe this would help the psalmist, it would help the sons of Korah to become more spiritual in their way of thinking about what was going on at that time. We see that, we see that at the very beginning of the psalm, don't we? The glorious past that they describe, well, along with the present or the future, all of that is the work of God. Rightly, they attribute everything that went right with Israel in times past, they attribute all of that to God. Um, If you go back to verses 1 through 3, it says in the second half, the deeds of verse 1, the deeds you did in their days and the days of old. God did these deeds. You drove out the nations with your hand. But them you planted, you afflicted the peoples and cast them out, for they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them, but it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. The psalmist acknowledges that this glorious past that they had in days before had little to do with them, and everything to do with God's work and God's power And God's promises. God promised that he was going to give the descendants of Abraham this land. And that is exactly what he did. It was by grace that they had been saved before. And it was by grace that they would be saved now. And don't misunderstand me. We must work. We must do what God has called us to do. But it is God who does the saving both now and forevermore. We plant and we water. But God gives the increased past, present, and future and whether it is us reminiscing about days past or the church and spur reminiscing about days past if we want increase to be given it will be given by the hand of God when we submit ourselves to him and his will but the thing that I think they needed to be reminded of and and maybe if the psalm continued beyond um, beyond verse 26 maybe we would see this turning What they needed to be reminded of is that appearances and reality are not always the same. The last word in Psalm 44 is that word mercy or long-suffering or steadfast love. It is the Hebrew word hesed, which is a powerful word, a word difficult to translate, but it ties back to the covenant that God has with his people. In the New King James, in the English, it it mixes it up. It says, redeem us for your mercy's sake. In Hebrew, it's really for the sake of your mercy, your long-suffering, your steadfast love. That's why we want you to redeem us. And that word is an acknowledgement that God always keeps his promises. He always does so in mercy and love and grace and faithfulness. And kindness. In the book of Hosea, it's used to contrast God's love for his people with their unfaithfulness to him. And these people, whatever time this was being written, they knew about God's covenant. They knew about God's love. And they're reminding themselves, as much as they're reminding God, they're reminding themselves that even though it appears God has abandoned us, we know and we remember that God always keeps his promises. That God keeps His covenant with His people. It is that same word that is used over and over in Psalm 136. As they recount there in that psalm, God has done this and God has done that in times past. And over and over they repeat the line, 
for his mercy or his steadfast love or his loving kindness endures forever. Reminding themselves, reminding the congregation of God's people that God has not abandoned them and will not abandon them. In Psalm 44, we have 25 verses of the appearance, the way things seem to be. And the reality behind that appearance is found in that last word, God's steadfast love, His mercy. And that brings us to Romans chapter 8 and verse 26. Turn over to Romans chapter 8, if you would. What is the reality behind the appearance? When we suffer, when we even suffer for righteousness' sake, what is the reality behind that suffering? When we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, what does that really mean? What is the real outcome of those things? Uh, in Romans, Paul says, just as it is written, and he quotes this verse, and he calls to mind Psalm 44 and verse 22, why? What is the mood? What is the context of Romans 8? In what context do we find these words used anew by the Holy Spirit? Well, let's go back to verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In some ways, it's the same context. It's suffering. And it is suffering, though they are righteous. It is unjust suffering. I don't deserve to suffer. I haven't committed some sin where I need to suffer, and yet still I'm suffering. And what Paul says is these sufferings, they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. Keep reading. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And from here to the end of the chapter, he describes as best he can in physical earthly terms the glory that's going to be revealed in us. And whatever that glory is, it is true freedom. Uh, verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope in what he sees? What is the glory? It is the redemption of our body, a buying back of the body to put things back where God wanted them to be, a glorious body. And if God had in mind the physical restoration of the earth, well, we wouldn't have to hope. We would see it. In verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We have to endure because the glory that is going to be revealed in us is in the future. Um... And so he talks about how the Spirit uh, helps in our weaknesses. Our spirit cries out to God with groanings that cannot be uttered. And, and Jesus, he who searches the heart, knows the mind of the Spirit. He knows what's in our hearts. And he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, 
to those who are the called according to his purpose. Those are the children of God. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Um, He glorified all of us in this. God is moving all of history toward the redemption of all things. And even more than just the forgiveness of sins in this life and all of the blessings that come with it, the greater blessings of the world to come are what are in mind. And so let's read verses uh, 31 through 39 now. Are you more confused or less confused after those explanations? We're suffering, and yet we're looking forward to some glory, the, the redemption of our body. That's what he's saying. And we know that God is working all things, even these sufferings, toward good, toward that ultimate expectation and reality of glory. Okay? So verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? The suffering, our hope, this expectation of glory. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is also at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. If we're going to be condemned, it's by Jesus Christ. But as Christians, he stands beside us and makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Quoting from Psalm 44. This is the reality for these brethren to whom he's writing. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, in this life, Maybe, maybe your experience has been different. Um, I've lived such a sheltered life in regard to persecution. I know very little of the things of verse 35. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. I know little of those things. And there have been and there are Christians now throughout the world who are familiar with those things firsthand. Can any of those things separate us from the love of God? Can I hear your head rattle? Can any of those things separate us from the love of God? We conquer those things. We are more than conquerors. We have the victory with our King, Jesus Christ. So these words, as he uses them in verse 36 of Romans chapter 8, do they find themselves in the same sort of mood as Psalm 44? Is it pessimistic? Is it cynical? Or is it optimistic and hopeful? It's 180 degrees different, isn't it? The same verse in two very different contexts 
And the way that verse changes gives us a platform from which we consider how the resurrection of Jesus Christ, His victory over death as our conquering King, changes everything for us. In each context, faithful people were being led as sheep for the slaughter. That was the reality of what they were dealing with. But Paul plucks that verse from the context of Psalm 44 and he takes and he puts it in one of the most positive passages in all of the New Testament. How can he do that? Because it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that changes how that passage is and can be used. What do we learn from Psalm 44? Well, if we turn over to Romans chapter 8, we learn that the resurrection changes everything. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 19, another long discussion of the resurrection and our resurrected bodies is considered there. And there were some in Corinth who were denying the resurrection. And Paul says in verse 19, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Without the resurrection, you know what every single one of us are? We're Psalm 44. But with the resurrection, we're Romans chapter 8. Think about that in literal terms. I want you to imagine for just a moment that you're one of the uh, remaining 11 apostles after Jesus' crucifixion. And so it's, it's Saturday afternoon. It's, it's the next day after Jesus died and was buried. Maybe you're just one of Jesus' disciples. And you are going to sit down and you are going to write a psalm. You are going to cry out to God. And you are going to ask God what was happening and why was it happening. And you are going to protest to God about your faithfulness and how you had followed after this one Jesus who was supposed to be the Messiah. If you sat down and you wrote that psalm on Saturday afternoon, what would it look like? It would look just like Psalm 44. God, you've delivered us in times past. And we know the power is not of, of ourself, but, but we, had, we had so much hope. There was so much promise. He was going to be the one to restore Israel. He was going to bring the kingdom. And yet here we find ourselves, despite our faithfulness, despite the fact we left all to follow Him, He's dead and He's buried. And where is our hope? And then the next morning, everything would change. And God's, God's loving kindness, His mercy and His grace would be clearly seen. And the resurrection would change that despair into a true and living hope. What does Psalm 44 teach us? No matter how deep or how black the darkness, no matter how severe or painful the suffering, Christ is still risen. And if Christ is risen, then we have hope. Little did they know on that Saturday afternoon, well, they could have known, they should have known maybe, but they didn't, that hope was coming in the morning. 
And Jesus' resurrection changes defeat into victory. It changes Jesus from a failure to the greatest shining success in the course of all human history. But ultimately it comes down to this. The resurrection changes death into life. It changes a reality for every one of us that you're going to die. We talked about that this morning, right? We talk about, you know, death and taxes are the only two things that are sure. But even that's not true. People cheat on their taxes all the time. But death is sure and death is coming. And it changes that reality of death into life. An enemy that we all will face, the certainty of death changes into the certainty of an everlasting eternal life. And I don't know about you, I've never been close to the depths of Psalm 44, but maybe you have. But again, no matter how deeply we go into the depths of darkness, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, if Christ our shepherd is with us, then we have the hope of life. However dark whatever you're going through is, Jesus' resurrection can change it into light you can be raised just as he was raised and you can have hope of eternal life just as he is in the heavens sitting at the right hand of God but in order to be raised you must first you must put off that old man you must crucify the flesh with its passions and desires in repentance You must confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that He did rise from the dead. You believe in Him and the power that He has. And you're willing to submit your life to His. And you go down into a watery grave of baptism. Then spiritually you can go from death to life with the hope of eternal life to come. If you're already a Christian and you realize in the depths of sorrow and suffering, maybe you've cried out to God and you're waiting for an answer. The answer is found in Jesus Christ. And if we as your brethren can help you with that, even tonight, won't you come now? While together we stand. Just as-